Whereas the pre previous section discussed uh, jihad as it is developing during the time of the Prophet Muhammad and throughout the Quran, we now come to section discussing the jihad as it became normative throughout the Muslim world. And this is heralded by the appearance of the Hadith literature. Uh, just to recap, uh, for Sunnis, the Hadith literature stands at the heart of what constitutes the Sunnah or the way of the Prophet. The Hadith are that vast corpus of the, the Prophet's sayings and doings uh, that probably developed during the Muslim conquests and later, but was gradually codified during the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries. Now, from a scholarly point of view, the interest uh, for the Hadith literature, for the Jihad literature, is huge inside the Hadith. Each Hadith collection will have a section on Jihad. And it is not impossible to see the links between those people like Abdullah bin Mubarak, who we discussed in the previous section, and those scholars who develop the normative mainstream Sunnah. As we discussed in the previous section, Abdullah bin Mubarak was a man who, who was fixated upon jihad as the salvational method of Islam. Now that did not become mainstream Muslim teaching in the Sunnah. Jihad was usually relegated to a section of Islam. It was considered to be a laudatory action. It was not considered to be one that was necessary for actual salvation, but one that was meritorious for Muslims to engage in. Now, the operative words for us in that regard are the two terms, Fard Ayn and Fard Kafaya, that gradually developed uh, throughout this period. Fard Kafaya means uh, that uh, jihad is an obligation that is incumbent upon the Muslim community as a whole, and is fulfilled when one section of the community at a given time is doing it. In other words, if in some place in the Muslim community there are people fighting in jihad, then the, the rest of the community is basically absolved from any particular responsibility with regard to it. We'll come back to the significance of that. Fard Ayn has to do with uh, the idea that jihad is incumbent upon each and every Muslim individually. But even in that particular case, Fard Ayn does not indicate that someone who does not do it actually becomes a non-Muslim. So there is a substantial gap between somebody like Abdullah bin Mubarak, who basically is pushing for a, a, a salvational aspect of fighting, and those scholars that are developing the mainstream of the Sunnah uh, inside the Hadith literature. Now, the figure that we have to concentrate upon the most is the figure of al-Bukhari, uh, who died in 875, who uh, wrote the most authoritative collection of Hadith, uh, the one that is second in uh, importance to the Quran itself among Sunnis, and who, not surprisingly, has a section on jihad. His uh, five cohorts, who constitute the so-called six canonical books, 
uh, Muslim, uh, Tirmidhi, uh, Abu, uh, Abu Daoud, uh, Nasai, and Ibn Majah, um, all of them hailed from the area of what we would today call Eastern uh, Persia, which is very interesting. In other words, none of the collectors of, early, of, the, of the Sunnah are actually coming from that area of the Muslim world that is actually fighting against Christians. In other words, Syria or Spain or Egypt, in other words. Uh, they're, they're all coming from, from that area of the Muslim world that uh, is culturally developing around Central Asia. It's very Persianate in culture. And jihad was important to them, but it wasn't necessarily that crucial. The one exception to that is the figure of Kazvini, who from his name comes from the, the border town of Kazvin, which today is in northern uh, Iran. Now, although it's uh, very centrally located, Kazvin at the time was right next to the border with, uh, with non-Muslims. And so it's not surprising that inside Kazvini's book we find an inordinate uh, emphasis upon jihad. But the other ones basically place jihad usually at a comparatively low point within their collections. Uh, they emphasize its spiritual importance. And they give us a wide range of traditions concerning jihad, but they don't give us the sense that jihad is of some sort of crucial or dynamic importance uh, to Islam. So the types of material that we find uh, with regard to uh, uh, with regard to jihad inside the canonical literature usually are that uh, they're uh, they're usually mandating the necessity for jihad. They will go into the martyr uh, the rewards for a martyr. They will especially go into the tactics connected with jihad. Uh, and then there's a whole long list of subsidiary topics that will be dealt with. What is, the, what is to be dealt with prisoners? What are the methodologies that are permissible inside, uh, inside jihad? Uh, how is one to deal with, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, ruled countries, nations, peoples, religions, and so forth? What is to be done with the money, the booty? This is a huge issue. How are horses to be treated? How are animals to be treated? How are holy sites to be treated? And so one can see that the dealings within, uh, within the Kitab al-Jihad inside materials like that are a far cry away from the Kitab al-Jihad of Abdullah bin Mubarak. They're mostly administrative in nature. They aren't uh, mandating any particular thing. Now, one of the other interesting things that we've uh, that we've discussed with regard to uh, to Abdullah bin Mubarak and his other followers is that anti-governmental side that they had to them, and this is reflected very strongly in the tradition that uh, that says the best type of jihad is speaking a word of truth in the face of a villainous sultan. It's clear from the uh, from the uh, uh, from the career of Abdullah bin Mubarak that he himself viewed that as being one of the crucial traditions 
is that the jihad was not merely directed outwards, but it was also directed inwards inside the Muslim community. And uh, the jihad fighter had the authority because he was willing to put his life on the line for Islam to actually confront a ruler and uh, to tell him to his face that he was wrong. Now, Abdullah bin Mubarak actually did do that to uh, the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, and the Caliph Harun al-Rashid responded. Now, this is not in, uh, out of line for some early caliphs, but it gradually became more and more of a problem. We'll come back to that point of spiritual legitimacy that's, uh, that stands at the heart of, of some of these uh, issues of what constitutes jihad uh, at a later time. But the uh, inclusion of these type of traditions is problematic within, uh, within mainstream collections. And so it's not surprising that the things that you find excluded from them have to do with both that salvational aspect of, of jihad and the anti-governmental side of jihad. And that the way jihad is presented inside these normative collections is as, as an accomplished fact that needs to be protected rather than as a continually expanding, uh, self-generating effect. Um, so, uh, now the second point that we need to realize is that gradually the Hadith literature is begin beginning to be codified into Sharia. The relationship of Sharia to the Hadith literature is a complicated one. Uh, in its most common form, essentially Sharia would be Hadith codified into a legal code. But that's fairly disingenuous because, as we've already discussed, the Hadith literature is hugely uh, contradictory. And so it's perfectly possible to come up with legal systems that are quite in variance with each other on the basis of the Hadith literature uh, and using more or less the same authority. So the question about how to deal with the jihad material inside the Sharia is, not, not surprisingly, a, a complicated one. And it pretty much depends upon those, uh, the, uh, upon which areas a given uh, legal system developed in during its infancy or where it, uh, it kind of cut its teeth, as it were. Um, those materials, those hadith materials, are always open for reinterpretation. And sometimes they're very radically reinterpreted. Uh, they're also open to being ignored. And this is probably the most powerful fate of, uh, of Hadith literature is simply to be ignored, is that it gradually gets put in sort of like a spiritual garbage can and ignored by Muslims throughout the centuries. And that truly has been the fate of a large section of the jihad material. But it's important to realize that always alongside this normative Sunni jihad material, there was an equally important but little or noticed section of jihad-focused uh, materials that, um, that continued on in the spirit of uh, Abdullah bin al-Mubarak. These are usually written by border guys, uh, guys who are fighting in the Crusades, who are fighting against the Mongols, uh, who preserved something of the aspect of jihad as a real, as a living and active entity. 
So let's go over what it's uh, what the the influence of the of the hadith uh, over the Sharia actually is. As I've said, hadith does not really mean law. It means potentiality. Hadith means that uh, that something is potentially a law, but not necessarily one. It was the responsibility of scholars to take this material and to and to group it into uh, into coherence during this period. Now, the major issues that they dealt with, and I'll I'll deal here with seven of them. First one has to do with the authority to wage jihad. Now, this uh, is one of the major, major problems of Sunnism, is the question of who has the authority. Where does the authority reside? The earliest traditions say that Allah, his apostle, and those who are in authority among you, and that one should obey those people. But the question is, is who are those who are in authority among you? Um, now, in general, in, at the early period, that coalesced around the figure of the caliph. The caliph was uh, the, uh, at least according to the, to the Sunni interpretation, the spiritual successor to the prophet. He did not have any of his necessary connection with God, but he did have some of his spiritual authority. And it's pretty clear that early caliphs, uh, for at least uh, the first hundred, uh, maybe 200 years, did use that spiritual authority to some extent to, uh, to meddle with things, to gradually change, modify, sometimes for political expediency, sometimes for cultural expediency, uh, elements of, uh, of Islam. And they viewed themselves as the legitimate and rightful successors to the prophet. Now, the problem was, is that gradually uh, during the latter period of that time, uh, there grew up the group which we call the ulama, or the scholars, the religious leadership of Islam. And this is a group that continued to be dominant really until the present day. This is a a self-selecting group that uh, is created by its educational prominence and its scholarly distinction, and to some extent by governmental interference. Um, But it is uh, not a controlled body. In other words, it uh, has a large number of people inside of it that um, can be added to or subtracted from at any particular time. And the source of this group's spiritual prestige is not their connection with the prophet, but their connection with the Sunnah. In other words, their, their connection is the, is the mastery that they have over the Sunnah, the Hadith, and then ultimately the Sharia. Since they're viewed as being custodians, they have by their very nature a conservative aspect about them. In other words, they can only lose aspects of the Sunnah. They can never really add anything to it, at least according to their own perception. This is not something that I would necessarily subscribe to. I think that they do actually change the, the sunnah considerably, but they, uh, that's the way that they present themselves. And so over the centuries, uh, it's become common to say that this is a group that has the right to declare jihad. 
Now, what is the method by which they would declare jihad? Now, usually, jihad uh, would it would be declared in times where there was some some perception that Islam was under some type of danger. In other words, uh, there was some sort of uh, enemy that was attacking, uh, and then the ulama would uh, proclaim uh, a state of jihad, and uh, then people would go forth and fight. Now, this process is known as ijma, or consensus. And in general, the ulama, uh, like many conservative bodies, have tended to operate uh, consensus-wise. In other words, they don't uh, allow for any one particular person to become prominent, but they, uh, they, they, they want to speak as a body, uh, as a collective. So the authority to wage jihad is usually believed to be incumbent upon two groups. One of them is the caliph, or some sort of figure who will call himself caliph, or a legitimate imam, an imam being a, a prayer leader among uh, Sunnis, or the ulama as a collective. Now there's a third exigency that uh, is sometimes uh, brought out, and we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to the figure of Ibn Taymiyyah, is uh, what is the problem or what is the deal when, uh, when those two groups fail to declare jihad, but the collective body of Muslims beyond them sees that there is some sort of danger? Now, this comes back to that issue of Fard Ayn and Fard Kafaya. In other words, uh, that particular doctrine of there being a, a, a time when jihad is incumbent upon each and every person as, uh, as a necessity to fight is essentially in response to the possibility that, the, that maybe the powers that be might not actually proclaim a jihad when there was necessity. Or there might not be time to declare a jihad. Perhaps uh, the consensus of the, of the community would take too long to achieve, and by the time that that was achieved, then the enemy would have won a battle. And so that Fard Ayn essentially allows uh, individual Muslims to respond early to a particular uh, point of danger prior to the time that they would actually be granted authority uh, to do so. Now, the question of authority also comes back to, uh, to the character of the leader. Uh, what happens uh, when a particular leader is, uh, is a bad person, is an illegitimate ruler? Now, this is a serious, serious problem, and one that gave an opening to a group of Muslim leaders that has been problematic in Islam ever since uh, the 9th and 10th centuries. Because fighting on behalf of Islam confers upon it a huge amount of spiritual uh, prestige, it's perfectly possible for a given person to gain that prestige and to, uh, uh, to absolve him or herself of his sins through fighting without actually abandoning the sins at all. And this is a problem that the, uh, that the, uh, the, the, that the legal scholars had to deal with. A sultan who is an immoral person, can Muslims actually follow that particular person into battle? 
and for the 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 struggle itself to be a, a legitimate one beyond that. Now, the answer that they came to, not surprisingly, was the compromise. Uh, in general, uh, the uh, the ulama tended to go from a classical point of view with the lowest common denominator. And so, not surprisingly, they went with the idea that even if the sultan, even if the ruler was an actual immoral man or an illegitimate ruler, then he still had to be followed if there was a jihad. Now, as a point, as a side point, it's important to realize what actually happened with that. Because that led to the possibility that, uh, that large numbers of military rulers or even slave rulers could rule and gain huge amounts of spiritual prestige as long as they continued to fight on the behalf of Islam. They could drink, they could exercise any sort of immoral activities, and still be followed because they were f- uh, fighting on behalf of Islam, or at least perceived to be fighting on behalf of Islam. So the issue of authority is, uh, and who has the authority to wage jihad, is uh, still a major problem, a very major problem. And we'll come back to it when we talk about contemporary jihad. Um, the second point has to do with uh, the scope. Uh, who... Who can participate in the jihad? Uh, the usual characteristics that are listed are five. Muslim, male, free, sane, physically able. So you have this situation where, uh, where these particular people are the ones upon whom it is incumbent to, uh, to be drafted. What happens if they don't want to be drafted? Are they actually in a state of sin? Now, according to Abdullah bin Mubarak, they definitely are. But according to others, uh, that's very much an open question. And it raises a lot of different other questions. What is the spiritual status of those people who would like to fight but can't? Is there a way, perhaps, that they could participate in the spiritual benefits that jihad confers? The most obvious group that is included in that is women. Now, we'll come back to the issue of women fighting in jihad at a later time, uh, since it mostly became prominent uh, during, uh, during the last 20 years. But it's clear that uh, from a classical point of view, women's fighting was not desirable. As one can see, uh, those uh, people who uh, are inclusive of, uh, in, in the fighting of jihad have to be male. But it's equally clear that you do find women, even in medieval times and even during the time of the prophet, who did participate in the jihad. Now, for the most part, that participation was of an auxiliary nature. In other words, usually uh, as exhorters, uh, perhaps uh, with medical capacities, uh, perhaps with other uh, different uh, helping out in certain ways as camp followers or as cooks and so forth. But... Nonetheless, it raises a different question about what is the what is the uh, the capacity of those people to be included inside the spiritually significant term jihad. There's also those people who 
maybe what we could, what we could say had other different things that they could possibly give to the jihad. And this raises the different types of jihad, which are usually divided up into three in classical times. There's the jihad of the sword, which we've discussed extensively. There's the jihad of the tongue. And that's the one where, where, the, where the sultan is reproved. Then there's the jihad of the heart. Now, the jihad of the heart is usually described as being that spiritual side of jihad where one wages warfare against Satan or one's inner characteristics. Now, it's not easy to tell when exactly somebody is waging jihad of the heart. Um, but there is one way that, that there's an outgrowth of jihad of the heart, which is known as jihad by money. And this is or jihad of possessions. In other words, where one gives possessions, gives money uh, on behalf of the jihad. In other words, to the fighters, supporting the fighter, uh, protecting the fighter's uh, assets while he's gone, uh, protecting his wife from being uh, from being attacked or being molested in some way. And and so the the, the that by extension, began to, to create a whole society where essentially jihad is everything. Jihad is maybe what we might call the entire support system around a, a, a given fighter. So the scope of jihad gradually uh, becomes extensive as we go through the Middle Ages. Point number three has to do with the target. And this, uh, this comes back to a, m a number of different issues uh, inside the Quran. Uh, you remember from the first section that we dealt with the, with the question of who and when, uh, who can be attacked and when can they be attacked. Inside the Quran, we oftentimes find mention of certain holy months or holy times uh, when, there's a, when fighting is forbidden but the verse of the of the sword seems to abrogate those particular times and says that one can attack at any particular time any particular place but who can one attack now the term jihad as we defined it in the at the beginning of the first se section we could call it god mandated warfare and so it seems logical that it excludes certain types of warfare that would not be God-mandated. In other words, that would participate in certain activities that uh, are, could not be justified under any circumstances. Now, classical jihad theory divided uh, the world into two different groups. One that was known as Dar al-Islam, the area or the abode of Islam, and the other was known as Dar, uh, Dar al-Harb, sorry, um, which was the house of war, the abode of war. The first area would be that area that was dominated by Muslims, dominated by Islam, and uh, would be in a state of peace. Uh, it could not be attacked legitimately. Um, and the second one would be area that it would be possible for somebody to attack. Now, there is a third section that has some uh, support within the legal material, which is known as the Dar es or the House of, uh, of Treaty. 
This is an area that is kind of a middle point in which, uh, in which the Muslims would have some type of a treaty or agreement with the people that would be located in there, at least for a temporary time. But in general, legal uh, descriptions allow mainly for the, for the appearance of those, uh, of those uh, two uh, areas. But who exactly can be attacked in jihad is still a very open question. Now, most of the Hadith literature lists off groups that are exempted from attack. Those are usually women and children, elderly, non-combatants, monks, and so forth. Uh, and so fighting against them or killing them in battle is fundamentally illegitimate. But who else can be attacked and who can be, who can be killed without any warning? Now, usually inside Islam... The worst uh, and most absolute penalties are uh, described for those people who do not have any form of revelation. In other words, polytheists. Those people can be attacked under any circumstances and usually killed even uh, after they surrender. So now who exactly is a polytheist is a serious problem. The word polytheist in general inside the Quran seems to be uh, relating mostly to those people that believed in a plethora or a pantheon of gods and goddesses. Uh, by extension, that probably includes Hindus and certainly includes certain forms of African traditional worship and probably Turkish as well. But uh, by extension, it's also come to include uh, Christianity because of the doctrine of the Trinity. And definitely from the time of the book of, uh, of uh, Abdullah bin al-Mubarak, you find mention of uh, Christians as mushrikun, as polytheists, or those who associate other deities with God. So this is the most powerful accusation or the, most, uh, the, the strongest attack word that can be used in Islam is somebody who's a mushrik, somebody who associates other deities with God. So those people are always targets. Now, as I say, there's, there's a lot of questions about whether Christians actually fit into that category. But Christians can, or Jews can definitely be attacked when they are not subordinate to uh, the Muslim political uh, domination or not under a dhimma. Um, other groups are much more problematic uh, from an early point of uh, time, you begin to find jihads that are leveled against uh, people who proclaim that they're Muslims, um, what we might call nominal Muslims. Now, those are already mentioned inside uh, the Quran. Those hypocrites that we mentioned in section number one would be nominal Muslims of some sort. But uh, from a Sunni point of view, just about anybody who wasn't a Sunni was somehow or another sectarian and could, if they tried to, uh, to uh, take over the Sunni order, uh, be attacked in some way or another. Um, other groups that, that could conceivably be attacked would be uh, apostates, uh, rebels of any sort, or uh, brigands, thieves, uh, or people who disturb the public order. 
So the uh, targets of jihad by this medieval period are extremely wide. And it's not entirely clear how exactly by this time jihad should be differentiated in its methodology from other uh, types of warfare. And indeed, inside the classical literature, we don't find somebody who is saying that, uh, well, women and children were killed in this particular battle, and therefore it is not a jihad. There's no real example of something like that, to the best of my knowledge. And uh, definitely by the time of the, of the Crusades, which we'll talk about in section number three, um, there's a tendency to, uh, to, uh, to focus upon that figure of the nominal Muslim as being the most dangerous, or the apostate Muslim, as being the most dangerous and the one who needs to be fought more than anybody else. Uh, and so we'll uh, return back to that issue. Um, okay, uh, the, the fourth point has to do with the methodology of jihad. Now, as I say, methodology and targets are closely related, um, but the, the methodology for a Sunni has to be uh, in tandem with the battle plans of the Prophet Muhammad. And so it's not really surprising that in many cases... Uh, battle plans will be chosen as following those of the prophet's classical battles. And uh, so in each particular case, they will, uh, they, will, they will choose some sort of a battle plan or methodology that will involve those things. Now, the question here has to do also with the types of warfare that are allowed. Because if jihad has spiritual uh, significance to it, then uh, that raises some serious questions about whether one can abrogate certain sections of Islam. <coughs> For example, is it possible to lie in jihad? Is it possible to deceive the enemy? One of the most common traditions inside, uh, inside the jihad literature is war is deception. What does that do and mean as a Muslim to find out that war is deception? Uh, inside, uh, inside the Quran, it lists off as a, some of the available methodologies of jihad to cut down trees, to destroy various different uh, wells and infrastructure. Is that something that should be encouraged? In other words, is the physical destruction of, uh, of, the, uh, of the environment, of the uh, of the enemy actually to be lauded. Um, are night attacks to be allowed? Now here we're starting to get into an interesting issue that is going to bear a lot of fruit in the 20th century. And that's the question about what happens when one kills groups or individuals that are prohibited by uh, by prophetic decree. In night attacks, for example, it's impossible to tell, in many cases, who is, who is an enemy and who's not. In other words, uh, if you come across somebody, you do not absolutely know whether they're a combatant or a non-combatant. There's usually not enough time to verify it. And 
Is the mere fact that they are in proximity to the enemy sufficient to mark them as an enemy and to absolve the Muslim if they're killed, let's say, by accident? And the answer is generally yes. And that leads to some further questions. Some further questions, uh, which have a lot of bearing on suicide attacks, and those come down to the, what is known as the mangonel issue. A mangonel is, uh, is a type of um, early projectile uh, catapult, um, a catapult that usually carries a large rock, and it will be hoisted and then sprung over a city and used to bombard it. Now, the thing is, is that it's impossible for that, uh, for that rock or whatever uh, to differentiate between who it is killing. Who is going to be on the receiving end uh, is not going to be a question that is going to be asked of the rock. And so the legitimacy of the use of mangonels and other different equivalent what we would today call weapons of mass destruction are problematic inside jihad. Should that be part of jihad when it is strictly speaking only being used to terrorize the, uh, the occupants of a given area? So mangonels, among other different things, have become a central issue in the discussion about uh, jihad methodology. And they continue to be a problem. They continue to be a problem about what, uh, what, what is the outer range of what is legitimate inside, uh, inside Islam to use in, uh, in jihad. Uh, ultimately, that question will lead uh, in the 20th century to whether it's possible to use nuclear weapons in, uh, in jihad. Um, Treachery, the use of spies, all of those different things were hashed out by the, uh, uh, by the, by the legal specialists. Okay, and now to, uh, to point number five, the spiritual significance of jihad. Spiritual significance of jihad is something that we discussed or alluded to briefly in, uh, in the first section. And comes back to this particular verse, uh, verse uh, uh, in Surah number 4, verse 95, which it says, Those of the believers who stay at home while suffering no injury are not equal to those who fight in the cause of Allah with their possessions and persons. Allah has raised those who fight with their possessions and persons one degree over those who stay at home, and to each Allah has promised the fairest good. Yet Allah has granted a great reward to those who fight and not to those who stay behind. So the Quran seems to strongly affirm the idea that there is a difference between those people who fight and those people who do not fight. But the problem is, is that there's nowhere really stated what is the nature of that reward. In section number one, we discussed the, the fact that there's a, a great many descriptions of heaven inside uh, the, uh, the Quran, and presumably those descriptions are designed for the believers. But there's no differentiation between what the believers get and what those people who die in jihad actually get. And so this is a particular point that clearly needed a hadith to resolve it. 
And the hadith that uh, that came to resolve it was basically the, uh, the one that listed off six different distinctions that are given to the uh, the fighter. Uh, of those six, three are basically important. One is is that uh, all of his sins get uh, get forgiven immediately. Uh, the second is, is that uh, he gets to intercede for 70 of members of his family and friends. And the third is, is that he's married to 72 of the Hural Ain, the uh, Huris, uh, the women of paradise. Now, this tradition has, uh, has its problems. Uh, and the most obvious one has to do with that word intercession. Uh, intercession is a major buzzword inside Islam. And the question about whether believers, prophets, holy men, or anybody else gets intercession or gets to, uh, to, to allocate intercession to others uh, seems to strike at the heart of the personal responsibility that each person should have vis-a-vis God. So the question about whether somebody could conceivably use a shortcut uh, and make some sort of an arrangement, and although it, stri- it might strike some as being bizarre, there are examples of this in the historical record that people made arrangements, this guy would die, and that he would intercede for everybody, uh, and so then we would be able to get out of whatever punishment we were headed towards. So those rewards uh, are being developed during this time. It's... Uh, uh, but they never really get mentioned well beyond the jihad literature. In other words, there's not there's not a very strong sense inside the historical literature that that uh, the people were propagating that jihad fighters were substantially different than other Muslims at this particular time. It wasn't until the 12th and 13th century that we begin to find inside the historical records that actually uh, jihad fighters are considerably different, are placed in a completely different category. They go straight to heaven. They have this whole marriage process and so forth uh, where they're married to the Hural Ain. Um, so discussions of rewards uh, are are problematic and never really, especially with that issue to that uh, of intercession, they never really fully get resolved. And then the seventh point has to do with the end of the jihad. Now, this is also a major major problem. Uh, inside the Quran, there are two ends that are listed. Uh, one is victory, and the other one is martyrdom. But in, as the Middle Ages uh, became more uh, part of, uh, as, as Muslims went on to the Middle Ages, uh, more and more Muslims began to actually suffer defeats and reverses that were never made up. Areas of Spain were lost, Sicily was lost, uh, areas of Central Asia were lost, uh, even areas in Africa were lost. And so it raises a question about what is the end of the jihad when Muslims actually fail to achieve victory? When can a jihad be said to be over? This is not an easily resolvable question. And again, it strikes at the heart of 
that feeling that you get from the sources that uh, that Islam at the at its at its codifying period was very closely wedded to victory and did not really have to conceptualize problems of defeat and how to deal with defeat. So for the most part, uh, Muslims laid down the idea that one should just simply go into what's known as a hudna, a treaty. And since the major treaty that the, that the Prophet signed, the Treaty of Hudabiyah, lasted for 10 years, in general, Muslims, when they signed uh, treaties, uh, what we could call not a peace treaty, but maybe a ceasefire uh, treaty, um, they would usually last for 10 years. And at that particular time, then the imam would have the responsibility to adjudicate whether uh, a given conflict was worthwhile for the Muslims or not. But in general, the, uh, the attitude of the, uh, of the ulama was pretty pragmatic. In other words, they tended to just kind of focus upon whether a given conflict was to the benefit of the Muslims or to not, not to the benefit of the Muslims. And so if it was not to the benefit of the Muslims, then they would uh, usually uh, find some way to finish it off. But from a legal point of view, it's very difficult to find out what exactly is the end. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think that that's coming from that idea that, that Islam should have an inexorable march towards victory. And when it doesn't, then there's a sense of frustration and sometimes anger. So I would like to highlight, to finish off here, uh, the compromises that uh, scholars had to make in order to come up with these, uh, these sort of discussions. And the first one is a question which I've oftentimes asked and other scholars have asked before me. Is this ideal picture of jihad a reality? Did this picture of jihad ever really influence rulers or commanders? Uh, is it the equivalent of, let's say, the Geneva Conventions where a general looks at it and says, well, you know, this tactic is uh, legitimate, this one is not, and therefore we will choose this particular tactic and avoid this particular one. And it's not very clear for, to me from the historical sources that the idealized picture of jihad that one finds in the, in the legal sources is actually a reality, or that, uh, that rulers or other different policymakers actually um, were, took care to, uh, to abide by it. The second question that one has to ask about this, uh, about this material is who is really in authority right here? And I don't know that that's ever going to be resolved, but um, the dominant feeling that, that you get from reading the jihad literature is really that the ulama are actually the ones who are driving it. And the idealized picture that, uh, that radical Muslims will come to use at a later time of uh, the, the Muslim community that they're trying to develop is an alliance between scholars and fighters. As Abdullah bin al-Azam says, he says, what is more beautiful than, the, uh, than the, the, the ink of the scholar being mixed with the blood of the martyr? So, but I, uh, I don't think that it's necessarily true that the scholars were any more likely to fight 
than anybody else. Uh, Bukhari was a student of Abdullah bin al-Mubarak's, but he never fought himself. And indeed, Abdullah bin al-Mubarak died in his bed. Uh, quite remarkable for a guy who wrote uh, the first uh, book of jihad is that uh, he never became a martyr himself. Um, and then the third point has to do with the question of legitimacy. Legitimacy, political legitimacy in Islam is, uh, is severely problematic. Um, where does one obtain political legitimacy? Um, there are many different sources. We've already listed off some of them following the Sunnah. Uh, the Shiites would, would say that, it's, uh, that political legitimacy comes from, uh, from being a part of the Prophet's family. There are other different uh, Muslims who have held to the idea that uh, cultural legitimacy uh, or being the heirs to the Persian or Greek culture somehow or another conveys upon it legitimacy. But a dominant form of legitimacy that developed during the Middle Ages was military in nature and uh, was, a, was very closely connected to jihad. As I said, one of those compromises that the scholars made was the fact that an immoral or an illegitimate sultan or ruler could legitimize themselves by fighting the jihad or by being perceived to be a defender of Islam. And so that particular personality was then relieved of the necessity to follow Islam as strictly as he possibly could. And that led to very interesting developments, uh, most especially those of the slave, uh, the Turkish slave soldiers that uh, so totally dominated uh, the core areas of Islam uh, from the from the ten hundreds onwards, even to the present day. And essentially, it leaves open the possibility and even probability that military rulers in Islam during the present day, can have a huge amount of legitimacy. It's from that sort of a presentation as the defender of Islam that all sorts of different military rulers gain their, uh, their political power. So, yeah, so that compromise that, uh, that the scholars made right at that particular point is one that cannot have been particularly comfortable for them. But it is one that had very lasting and powerful effects upon Islam and led it down a certain path uh, of, of conquest and of, uh, of expansion that otherwise could not have been fueled by the materials.